Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Monkeypox. Hopefully, and most likely, you've avoided catching it. But it's been impossible to avoid the headlines. A quick search and you'll find a load of articles charting case numbers since it arrived in the UK, and some suggesting the virus could become endemic. I personally am one of those people constantly worried about getting ill, so I try to avoid these stories where I can. But the deluge has become so great, I feel like I need to know. What is monkeypox? What's going on with the cases? And how might the situation develop? Here to explain that is Dr Charlotte Hammer, a fellow in emerging infectious diseases at Downing College, Cambridge, and an applied infectious diseases epidemiologist. Charlotte, now I've got the hard bit to pronounce out of the way. Welcome to the bunker. Thank you for having me. So first things first, can you put in simple terms, what is monkeypox? So monkeypox is an orthopox virus. Um, so it's it's a virus, um, although it's very different from COVID. It is a zoonotic disease. So by zoonotic diseases, we mean those diseases that jump from an animal to a human. But unlike what you might assume with the name monkeypox, it does not actually come from monkeys. The monkeys are actually sort of the, the sad story in here because it's really not their fault. Not that it is any animal's fault, but um, it's just <laughs> called monkeypox because it was first discovered in monkeys that were kept for research purposes in the 1950s. It actually does come from rodents in sort of western and central parts of Africa. Okay, so will those monkeys have sort of caught it from a rodent and then that maybe potentially passed on to humans sort of in a, in a chain like that? Um, so that is basically how it can happen. Uh, in the case of that first discovery, they most likely caught it somewhere in Africa and then were shipped to Europe for research purposes. And obviously research animals are um, kept under very close observation. So it was discovered there. But we've seen cases where we, what you just described exactly happened like that. So we've had cases in the early 2000s in the US where rodents from Africa were imported and then infected prairie dogs. And those prairie dogs in turn infected humans. And that was actually up until now the largest outbreak of monkeypox outside of Africa. So in terms of more well-known illnesses, maybe, what is it like? Because I hear pox and you know, think of smallpox and chickenpox. Is it in the same family as those? Yes and no. So it is in the same family as smallpox. Um, uh, so that's the, the similar family. Those are orthopox viruses. But chickenpox is actually a completely different family and has nothing to do with them. Although some states of the disease can look a little bit like chickenpox. So the association isn't totally wrong. It's just virologically wrong. And so what sort of symptoms do people get when they get monkeypox? Now, initially, the symptoms are pretty unspecific. So you'll initially get a fever. You'll kind of feel quite ill. Um, you'll have a headache, maybe, maybe a backache, some muscle pain. And then that progresses onto a rash, which changes itself over time. So it will be a rash that usually starts from the face and then spreads out from there, mostly to the extremities and to the genitalia. And we'll start with these sort of pustules, which later turn into lesions, which then scrap over and then the scrap falls off. And once the scrap has been replaced with healthy skin, that's when someone is basically done with the disease. How long did it take for those symptoms to manifest? What's the sort of lifespan of monkeypox? So that's what we normally call the incubation period from um, getting infected to actually showing symptoms. And that's between one and three weeks. In terms of the the risks of it, is there a sort of a rate of death that we should be concerned about 
no rate of death is fine you know you would not want that to be zero in any situation in life but is it to a level that there's cause for concern there that is actually a very difficult question to answer because we haven't had large outbreaks outside of africa so within africa and with the west african clade which is the the sort of subtype of monkeypox that we are now seeing in this outbreak the figures have been from below 1% to about 3.5% uh, case fatality rate. That's what we call it. But obviously, if you think it through, this is in resource-limited settings. So this is not necessarily the same setting you would have in, say, London or in Brussels or in Berlin or in a European city. So it doesn't translate fully. So we can't really say that fully. But in most cases, monkeypox is a unpleasant, but in sort of medical terms, mild disease, because it is what we call self-limiting. So it will go away on its own, which also means that treatment are mostly supportive. But the, the risk that exists is because you have these open lesions at times, is that there can be a bacterial infection of those lesions which can be quite severe. So one of the really important things uh, when dealing with monkeypox is to make sure those lesions are staying absolutely uh, spotlessly clean. So the higher risk could be kind of secondary in terms of, you know, if you were to have it and then not take care, you could get some sort of blood infection or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there are a few other minor, sort of minor in terms of numbers complications that are possible but that is the, the main issue. And it's also the main issue where people who happen to have caught monkeypox can actually take action themselves. In terms of how it's spreading and how it's in Europe now, and we're seeing it here in the UK, what do we know about how it's spreading? So initially, it is still a zoonotic disease. So it will have come from a road, most likely a rodent somewhere at some point. And that first contact is through usually through bites or by close contact with um, bodily fluids from an infected animal. Now, what we're seeing now mostly is human to human transmission, which is actually something that is fairly rare in monkeypox, at least if we look at sort of the literature looking back over the last half a century. Now, for that to happen, you need to have fairly close contact. So that means you have skin-to-skin -skin contact with someone who has a rash. Um, you have contact with the lesions or with the fluids in the lesions. You have contact with the, with the scrap, both on someone, but also once it's fallen off. Also once that is, for example, on bedding and you're making the bed, that is also something where you can have contact with it. That's in particularly in a healthcare setting. And you can also have it if you have very close face-to-face -face contact, because obviously you can also have these lesions um, in your face, you can have them in your mouth, and the, the bodily fluids can be infectious in that case. It's bodily fluids is the sort of the highest risk for it. It's not airborne, say, in terms that COVID has been. We, were not, you know, we wouldn't expect to start wearing face masks to protect ourselves from this, so... Not normally. Um, there might be a few settings where face masks might help as one measure among a lot. So if you think about like settings where you have very close person-to-person -person contact, very close face-to-face, -face, maybe even shouting at each other for a prolonged period of time, 
their face mask could do something. But then again, in that setting, there are so many other risks for transmission that personally, I would just avoid that setting at the moment entirely. Absolutely. I mean, if we can avoid screaming matches with each other, the world would be a much better place if we can try and <laughs> try and do that where we can. I think from so many points of view, that is true. It's not an STI, but there has been this discussion around it being spread through sex. Is that just because, you know, that is about as close quarters as you can get with a person, really? And then does it just develop that putting that within the media creates something that it's, you know, sexes it up, for want of a better word? It sounds more interesting, maybe. But do you think that's a bit of a conflation, really? You're absolutely right. It's not traditionally speaking an STI, but sex just comes with very, very close bodily contact. Um, I don't really see how that can be avoided. So in that perspective, sex is a risk factor, for sure. I wouldn't say it's sort of spiced up in that way, because sexual intercourse is, is definitely a risk factor, but it's just not through the traditional STI route, rather than through the very close human-to-human contact route. Do you think that maybe because it spreads to the genitals creates some confusion there and that's sort of it you know from what you said that's somewhere where actually generally it wouldn't start there it'd more likely start around your face and then spread out throughout the rest of your body i mean that's certainly one of the of the points but even if you have it spreading to your genitals and then you practice safer sex you use a condom that's good that's um, i would in general encourage that but it's because you have them somewhere else as well, and you will have close contact somewhere else as well, that's not going to be sort of the be-all, end-all in terms of protecting you. So there's there's an element there where we need to be careful when we talk about this as being sexually transmitted, not only because it's strictly speaking not true, but also because it can create a false sense of safety because, oh, I'm practicing safer sex, so I'm I'm okay, which in this case isn't the case. In terms of it being in Europe, just how unusual is that and you mentioned the idea of maybe a rodent of some kind of spread it do we have any idea right now of any specifics on that and just how you know how unusual is it to be in the places that it is at the moment it is very unusual to have it spreading in those places so previously you would expect like one or two travel associated cases where you can very clearly say okay this person has been in a risk region in an endemic region um, and has brought it back and there has maybe been one additional infection in a very close contact, say someone in the family who you have very close contact with. Now, what we're seeing now is more or less sustained human-to-human transmission within Europe, and that's extremely unusual. This is, um, in fact, the the first time that this has been reported at this scale. So in that regard, it is quite unusual. I saw a headline saying that it could become endemic. What does that mean? I think that is to a certain degree a, well, I'm not going to say overly cautious, but a very cautious reading of the latest rapid risk assessment from the European Centre for Disease Control. Now, that mentioned the possibility of this disease jumping back to animals in Europe and establishing an animal reservoir in Europe. That is potentially a possibility. We, at the moment, don't know very much in terms of which animals would even be suitable as an animal reservoir there are some suggestions about some types of squirrels possibly but that is still up to very much debate and um, clearly up to more research 
But the ECDC report very clearly states that the likelihood of this happening is quite low. It would need to jump through several hoops. So you would have to have someone who's infected who has very close contact with an animal. That animal would then have to be susceptible. It would have to actually get it and it would have to actually stick in an animal population if you if you want to put it like that. To what degree this is possible, we don't know. It's the, At the moment, it's sort of in the theoretically possible, let's be on the lookout area. When you're seeing something like this spread, what do you look out for in the numbers? What would give you more cause for concern, perhaps? I think the issue is now to look at how quickly we can get a significant number of the new cases we identify among contacts we have identified. So that means uh, we are now doing very active contact tracing. So ideally for each person who has it, we want to know everyone they've been in contact with. And ideally, we want to get to a point where all the new cases we identify are among people we've already been in touch with because they are a contact from a known case. We have a very good overview of it then, and we have a very good chance of controlling it then because all the people who are getting it are people we are already expecting to get it. In the UK, as we record, so apologies to anyone listening if this is slightly out of date, there are 57 cases. You know, is that a containable number? I look back to COVID and I remember I was working at the Evening Standard when the first case of COVID came to England and that just seemed like a, it felt like an anomaly. And then before you knew it, I was reporting on thousands and thousands of cases and we all know that trajectory. Have we caught this at an early enough point does 57 feel like a containable sort of number for you or does that figure you know worry you at all it does worry me insofar as it is unusual and insofar as i know we need to to act on it now quickly and strongly but on the other hand if you think it through so that means these people need to be under observation um they ideally are self-isolating they need to be monitored through that self-isolation period and all their contacts need to be monitored as well. With 57, that should still be very much doable. I mean, we do have a fairly large public health network, and this is core public health functioning. So this is something that public health really knows how to do well, and especially, although it's not an STI, if you go to the, the colleagues who work in the health protection teams who work on STIs, they are the absolute experts on doing contact tracing, on keeping on top of these kinds of outbreaks. You spoke about secondary issues with monkeypox, say if you were to scratch you know, a lesion and it would become infected. Is there a concern of secondary issues here, say that STI clinics are going to be overworked to an extent? That would probably at this point most likely be from the worried well. So the worried well is how we describe people who are not at particularly high risk, who probably don't have all the symptoms, but who are just very concerned and who will want to see a health care practitioner. And that can very quickly lead to a large number of, of people who need to be seen. On the other hand, we would not want to have people among them who are the, the actual cases who would be turned away. So that's certainly something that is difficult to handle. At the moment for the UK, the recommendation is to actually get in touch via phone with an STI clinic or with 111 or with your healthcare practitioner. So there will be some level of triage um, to find out who the real cases are at that stage already. But at the moment, this is still sort of within 
in terms of the numbers within a containable area, I would say. How soon should someone do that? I mean, if it's a fever and illness, it's maybe quite hard for someone to think of it as being anything, but the world is coming back to being a little bit more normal and we're going to get ill again. How soon is that? Is that sort of, you know, if you have any variety of rash you're worried about? And is there any kind of, I don't know, thing you can do at home? I don't. I know you're not a clinician here, so sorry, but uh, and I know with meningitis when I was growing up, it was always sort of roll a tumbler over your arm and stuff like that. Is there any way you can really kind of specifically notice this rash is unusual to maybe an allergy or something like that? We are at a point where it doesn't make sense to get in touch with healthcare practitioners if you notice any kind of, for you, unusual rash. If you have allergies and they present as a rash, you will probably know what that looks like. So if there's anything unusual about a rash, better get in touch one too many times than one too few. When it comes to those earlier symptoms, the the fever, the sort of just feeling ill, headache, That is very difficult to distinguish also from things like COVID, which is also still around. But on the other hand, if you have a fever and a headache and you kind of feel like you have a cold, it most likely is something that is contagious. So if you can stay at home, that's certainly a good idea, no matter what it is. COVID has clearly gotten people on a sort of high alert when it comes to any variety of illness or infection. Do you think people do need to take a realization here and have an acknowledgement of the fact that this is very different. I think that's really, really important. There's actually two elements here. While this is an unusual outbreaks, outbreaks are not per se unusual. They happen all the time. So if we pay more attention to infectious diseases, we will see more infectious diseases. And I'm now speaking sort of as a general public, because obviously healthcare systems are ideally very aware of these things already. On the other hand, for people whose first interaction with news about infectious diseases was COVID, it certainly now takes a little bit of of learning and of sort of reflecting that there are infectious diseases that present very differently from COVID, that transmit very differently from COVID, and that are controlled very differently from COVID. That is totally understandable. I mean, it is a very wide field. Not all of us are experts in everything, even within sort of virology, epidemiology. There's a very, very wide range of specializations. So I can very much understand that initially that might be confusing. And I can understand why people jump to conclusions that have been drawn from COVID response, but that might not be entirely appropriate to monkeypox. Monkeypox has been around for a while, though it seems to be under-researched to an extent, as you said, by particularly in Europe, because we've sort of ignored it because it's far away. In terms of treatment and, I don't know, in terms of vaccinations, are we, you know, are we on a better footing than we were, say, with COVID as well, in the fact that we have, even if we've not paid huge attention to it, fortunately there have been some people, such as yourself, who have some idea of it and have researched it to an extent. We're certainly on a much better footing, not only because we've known this disease for quite a long time. And in that regard, it might also be a very good idea to listen to our colleagues from Nigeria, from Cameroon, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, who are very well versed in handling monkeypox. 
Um, so we, we really need to hear more of those voices from those countries because to them, this is not something new. But on the other hand, also because of the type of virus that monkeypox is, because it is an orthopox virus, it is very closely related, although not as severe as smallpox. That means that a lot of things that apply to smallpox in terms of treatment and vaccination also apply to monkeypox. So we can assume, for example, that the smallpox vaccines are quite effective against monkeypox, which is in fact why in the UK they are now being used as pre- and post-exposure prophylaxis in some cases. Similarly for treatment, although treatment is mainly supportive and is mainly not specific to monkeypox. Charlotte, you've calmed my nerves very much. I'm an anxious person when it comes to this sort of thing, so I've really appreciated having an expert actually tell me what I should think about it. On a final note, sort of what would your, you know, to people who are seeing it and getting themselves worked up, what would you say to them? Is there any need to be particularly worked up right now? I think at the moment there is a very limited risk to the general population. The risk goes up with the amount of very close contacts you have. So if you are someone who has a lot of very close contacts, for example, a lot of sexual contacts, also with people you don't know, that risk goes up. So be aware of those symptoms, be aware of what can happen, and just be cautious. There is absolutely no reason for any kind of panic at this stage. So that's uh, the the really important bit. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me today. That was uh, really insightful. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to support us further, you can also back us on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis signing out of the bunker. Thank you for listening. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Sofranievich, and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kevin Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>